With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Junk Food Cinema. Hi, this is Dick Miller. You're listening to Junk Food Cinema on Film School Rejects. Who are these guys? Junkies, and welcome, verily, to another episode of Junk Food Cinema here Anon. on Film School. Anon! Another episode, Anon! <laughs> quite, quite. This is Film School Rejects' weekly cult and exploitation film cast that is so good, it just has to be fattening. I'm your host, Brian Salisbury, and joining me for this uh, for this merry event is novelist slash screenwriter slash co-host of the show... Slash... Slash Captain... Le- I'm sorry, Lieutenant in Megaforce... Mr. C. Robert Gargill. I bite my thumb at you, sir. Ah, uh, by my heel, I care not for your rank <laughs> in Megaforce. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, if you aren't aware, this show is available on iTunes as well as on Stitcher. You can also follow us on Twitter at Junk Food Cinema and like the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash Junk Food Cinema. All right, so we are continuing through all month long uh, here in June. We are talking about teen films, teen comedies mostly. There's going to be a little bit of drama here and there, but mostly teen comedies. Last week, of course, we talked about Can't Hardly Wait. This week, we are talking about 10 Things I Hate About You. We are getting Shakespearean up in this bitch. Oh, yeah. We are we are barding it up. And uh, next week, we will be talking about Sky High. And then we'll be wrapping the month with The Last American Version. So, version? The Last American Virgin. Uh, the American version of Last American Virgin. That There you go. That's, that's actually very apt, and we will get into that when we talk about that movie. Um, but yeah, just so you guys know, so that you can go out, rent, buy, whatever you need to do, so that you can watch the movies ahead of time. And then therefore, when we talk about these things, you guys can be completely up to speed. But for now, let's go ahead and talk about probably more than 10 things we love about 10 Things I Hate About You. For every girl who's ever hoped. Daddy, as you know, it's the prom. Every guy who's ever tried. You never give up, do you? Was that a yes? No! And anyone. You're concentrating awfully hard considering it's gym class. Who's ever been taken completely by surprise. Not as vile as I thought you were. 10 Things I Hate About You. So this is, of course, uh, 1999. This is an adaptation of William Shakespeare's Taming of the Shrew. Set in a high school. Yes. And that is where this strange story begins. Yeah, and in fact, it's not the only one of these. Uh, the These uh, writers, I believe, would go on to pen another high school set adaptation in which they would do The Twelfth Night. Uh, uh, oh, my called- God. She's the man. Yes. The- okay. Yes. I did not realize it was the same people. Oh, yeah, yeah. She's the man. They went ahead and duplicated it. And she, w- by the way, you know, we're not doing an episode on it, but She's the Man is quite good. It's it's a quite good adaptation of Twelfth Night, um, which when you understand your Shakespeare and you love your Shakespeare, it's it's really hard to fuck up. You really have to, you know, you really have to be inept to fuck up Shakespeare. Uh, and this is really good Shakespeare. Uh, but here is 10 Things I Hate About You, which is Taming of the Shrew. Um, and most notable about this, you know, we talked about this last week with Can't Hardly Wait, how incredible a young cast it is. And it had a bunch of great up-and-coming young TV stars and uh, young actors who would go on to do really good things. And it's such an incredible cast of how did you get all these great people here? Such a great casting job. And this is the oh my god! How many? How did you get so many titans of mm-hmm. of acting? So many huge stars, so many legends in their own right. 
yeah. uh, into one movie because this movie is just filled to the brim with them. And that's the thing is is this cast is phenomenal. And not just that they have a lot of personality, not just that they are charming in front of the camera. This is a supremely, these are supremely talented young actors, either right at the start of their careers or like just at the point where it was taking off. I mean, uh, Heath Ledger, right off the bat, uh, Julia Stiles, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I mean, come on, like just right there, just that trio alone. Yeah, the, the the above the line big three um are all huge and have gone on to do uh huge genre films you know uh of course you know two of them would end up in in Nolan's Batman films as as pivotal characters and uh uh and another would end up as one of the pivotal characters in the Bourne series uh, as mm-hmm. well as having an entire series on Dexter and that's just those three then you have the rest of this cast who would go on to other really great genre stuff. That was the thing about last week. You know, the, this that cast, some would go on to genre, some would go on to drama, some would go on to comedy. The actors in this movie would go on to do epic genre stuff. Like, even the smaller characters would then go on to have shows like Numbers and, you know, crazy, you know... Uh, David Crumholtz, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. would, would go on to do all this really great, crazy stuff. Um, and, and so... but. It's all of this young, brimming talent exploding in this film that just, you know, it's a lot like Can't Hardly Wait because these are teen films, because of what we're talking about this month. Um, Because they're teen films, uh, people initially just wrote them off as only working for teens. And again, this is one of those movies that I saw very early. I saw in the in the theater. Uh, because of my adoration of teen films, and that just instantly worked. Uh, now this one is goofier than last week's movie. There's a there's a few very era specific stuff. There's some humor that doesn't entirely translate and transcend time. Uh, that you know a few moments that don't exactly still 100 percent work as they did when they came out. Uh, and yet at the same time, there's so much stuff that really does, including most of the character stuff. And it's funny too because we talked last week about Can't Hardly Wait, borrowing a lot from uh, from the '80s, and you know, using the '80s as sort of the classic archetype for a teen movie. And while this definitely has moments where it too is beholden to you know the, the '80s teen movies, you don't get much more classical as a blueprint than Shakespeare. Yeah, and I like the way that they are blending their two big. Um, influences here. One, of course, being the original play, and the other being, you know, the the really great teen films of the '80s. And yet, this movie could not be more '90s if if it tried. No, it really it would be it. You know, the only the only teen movie more '90s than this would be She's All That. Um, oh my God! Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that movie is so not. In fact, that's as we were talking about in a previous conversation. That movie is trying to be so '90s that it's trying to define the '90s mm-hmm. and then misses by creating its whole own language. It tries to make fetch happen, like <laughs> you're vapor. It's like, what, nobody says nobody stop says trying to make that. vapor happen. Try to stop trying to make vapor happen. Like the movie's filled with these these like attempts at creating slang. Because now what that means is that you smoke e-cigarettes. That's all yes. that means now. Yeah, you're vapor. You're vaping. No, what? what? <laughs> you're a vapist. Yeah. Um, can can we can we assign that term to people who use e-cigarettes? Vapists? No. no. no? Okay, fine. No vapists. I'm just saying. Is, yeah. No, that's that's a different type of fedora wear. Um, <laughs> you are the vapist. <laughs> um, so anyhow, sorry, fedora wearing listeners. Um, I, I imagine there's like three people wearing fedoras as they're listening who took it off, slammed it down, and went, "I never." It's and not they- a. It's not a fedora, Cargy. It's a trilby. <laughs> it's a trilby. <laughs> <laughs> well, you keep it trill, well, and uh, the rest of us will pretend you're not you're wearing it. Vapor. Uh, but yeah, so but yeah, so like that movie is so '90s. This one is just kind of there in the '90s and feels '90s. Well, my favorite is you know there's a moment in almost every like what I love about teen movies and watching them across the decades. This is so interesting is how they define their cast system. Like Breakfast Club literally assigns one paradigm from each group. Like you are the jock, you are the brain, you are the princess, yeah. you are the head case. This movie has that scene that is in every great 
teen movie where someone who is uh, new to the school and effectively becomes the sounding board for the audience is guided by someone who has been at the school through who all the various groups are. I mean, there's a great scene in Mean Girls with, you know, that does this as well. There's also a really terrible scene in Bratz that, that fails to grasp this. Oh, I'm sorry. There's a terrible scene in Bratz? I thought the that whole movie that was is specifically okay, this. Okay. Yeah. In fact, the entire the entire movie Bratz is built around this conceit and fucks it up at every turn. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, Bratz is just shit interwoven. It is a fecal pastiche. So yeah. Oh, no. it is literally one of the worst movies I've ever seen. <laughs> like it is. It is. Bratz is up there in in epicness of just how terrible a teen movie can be. Like, if you want to know, if you want to see. How this is done well and how this is done terribly. Watch Bratz back to back with 10 Things I Hate About You and see how much it has in common and just where it goes wrong. If you ever want to, if you're a writer and you want to write teen films, you will all of a sudden have such a grasp of how, of what makes a great teen film a teen, a great teen film and what makes a terrible teen film so, uh, Vapor. And it's just so will. vapor. Just so vapor. <laughs> but in that scene in this movie that it makes just so unbelievably 90s, one of the groups is just a bunch of people who drink way too much coffee. Oh, yeah. They just they just drink too much coffee uh, because this did take place, by the way, at a uh, at a school in. Uh, well, it's, it's I don't know if it's supposed to be set there, but where they actually filmed it was a school in Washington state. So like right at the heart of, of the grunge movement, also the heart of, you know, the, the Starbucks and the coffee, you know. Well, boom it's a, of the, there, yeah, there was a very big coffee movement in the 90s, mm-hmm. coffee shops, and it was all about independent coffee shops for a while. And you couldn't throw a stick in the 90s without hitting a newly opened independent coffee shop and then Starbucks started popping up and then Starbucks started absorbing at the uh, at the end of the 90s and of course into the 2000s and now you know it, the joke is you know in very true there are places in this world where there are Starbucks across the street from one another so that they can capitalize on which which part of town people are walking from to get their coffee and then of course another group is the future MBAs with Bogey Lowenstein and I, I just remember they go to that group with their giant clunky cell phones and like and their sweater vests, and I'm just like, oh yeah, this this is an inescapably '90s uh, group in the cast system of this high school. And it's fun if you watch teen movies across decades. Almost every one of these movies has a scene like that, and you get to see how this group. In fact, Twenty One Jump Street has one of my favorites because uh, he's trying to explain to uh, Jonah Hill like what the different groups are because he was cool in high school, and he's like. I, I don't know what those people are. <laughs> like yeah. he's like those are the geeks, those are the jocks that um I don't I don't I, I don't know what those people are. <laughs> like it it changes so much from decade to decade and that's yeah. that was really fun to, to see in this movie. And of course the other thing that's extraordinarily 90s about this aside from just the soundtrack is the movie ends with a performance by Letters to Cleo. That's true. Uh, on on the roof of the building. Who who I actually saw live in the 90s uh and were quite fantastic. There you uh, go. But yes, it's that wonderful why are they playing on the roof? Fuck it. That's why. Because they're up there. So if you aren't familiar with the story of Taming of the Shrew, here's the basic breakdown. Uh, in this version, I'm going, I'm going to use all the character names from this version, so if they don't gel in, uh, with the exact names in the play, you'll have to forgive me. But in this movie, you have the Stratford sisters. You have Katerina and Bianca. And Bianca is, you know, the beautiful young ingenue, and there are so many guys at school that would love to date her. The problem is her father has this whole thing about not letting his daughters date until they graduate. It's a widely known fact that the Stratford sisters aren't allowed to date. Um, he just, he he works at a, uh, like a, uh, I don't know if it's like a hospital or if it's just like a Planned no, Parenthood type No, of, no, no, he's a, um, he's an obstetrician. Yeah. He delivers babies. Exactly, And he's yeah. terrified of his daughters becoming teen mothers. Exactly, so. He, played by the very talented Larry. Uh, um, Larry Miller. Larry, Larry Miller. Yeah. Who's very funny in this. He's over the top. For this movie, and he's part of what's over the top in the movie, but he's still very funny. Absolutely. So, uh, meanwhile, the elder sister, Katerina Stratford, is very opinionated, very abrasive, uh, kind of a mega bitch. Kind of a shrew. Kind of a shrew, you might say. And so, just to kind of, I don't know, to, to kind of um, make sure that Bianca will never date, he comes. Up, the father comes up with a new rule. Oh, you can date as soon as your sister does, knowing full well that no guy at this school is interested in the exceedingly harsh 
shrew that is Katarina Stratford. Well, enter into the fray Joseph Gordon-Levitt's char- character Cameron James, who I didn't realize this uh, when watching, is actually named for James Cameron. Um, they just kind of reversed the name around a little bit. But he is in love with Bianca. He knows about this this deal that the father has, this rule. Kind of. Well, no, I mean, he, he learns about it. That's, yeah, the, he whole learns reason, about it. that's yeah. the whole reason they go after the way that he and his best friend, played by uh, David Krumholtz, go after this idea that they're going to find a guy that they can... Um, there's there's a, a jock character who's also in love with Bianca, who has a lot of money. So what they decide is they are going to use him to pay someone to go out with Katarina so that, in fact, Joseph Gordon-Levitt can then go out with Bianca. That's the basic premise. And then the guy that they find happens to be, and this is my favorite kind of throwback to the 80s, is it reminds me of a movie like... Um, uh, like uh, three is it three o'clock high? Yeah. Uh, where you have a, a a character who is just an insane, like bizarre, uh, like a character who who basically is oh, wait, is a criminal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I would say that he's more reminiscent of a certain. Fist in Judd the Nelson, air. Sure, Judd Nelson, sure, from, Breakfast, from Club. Breakfast Club. But it just, yeah. It, but he also reminded me of the guy. I believe the movie is called Three O'clock High. Yeah. Or three fifteen, yeah. No, anyway. it's called three o'clock high. Three o'clock high. Yeah, no, no, the one where the the, the nerd gets uh, uh, crosses paths with this insane criminal at the school. Yeah, it's high noon in high school. Exactly. It's it's again one of those films that was on the short list for this month, but quite literally, we could have done an entire summer of of the greatest. Uh, uh, teen films because there really are so many but 3 O'Clock High is a great one absolutely so played by Heath Ledger is this character Patrick Verona uh, and he is the guy that they have decided that they are going to get the jock to pay to take out Katarina so that the jock will think he's the one that's going to get with Bianca when really it's just Gordon Levitt that's that's the plan here Um, and then of course wouldn't you know it uh, Patrick in his quest to melt the icy heart of Katarina himself falls for her and that's that's the story we're well, sticking to it. Yeah, and that's and what's interesting is that you find out uh, that these two characters, who are two of the most notorious people in school, you know, uh, they are just absolutely notorious. You find out that their reputations are not exactly properly earned, uh, but are well cultivated by them, and that they're both, again, a theme that we will go through this, you know, in all the episodes this month, they are facades, mm-hmm. uh, that, as it turns out, they're both very normal, very adorable, lovable people who uh, have these walls up to protect them from everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a guy that everybody believes is a criminal and is... Um, is dangerous and will stab you with a rusty uh, switchblade at the drop of a hat, who was off in jail or an insane asylum for a year, was really off taking care of his dying granddad. Yeah. And then you have this this character who is uh, very closed off and, and considered a bitch by everyone, who is so because she's had her heart broken, she and had her heart broken and was used by another character in the movie uh, in, in one of the bigger twists. Uh, and as a result of that, she closed herself off and re- refused to let herself get hurt again. So now both of these people start opening themselves up and then open themselves up to getting hurt. Yeah. And it's, you know, one of the classic, two very classic themes in a lot of Shakespeare's plays is, you know, everyone's not what they appear to be. And this very kind of complex plot of, you know, scheming and betraying and like this plot is actually like this scheme actually is the front for this scheme. I mean, Shakespeare wrote a really a lot of really complicated thread lines in his stories and in his plays. And what works so well about about 10 Things I Hate About You is the one place where all of that stuff is is naturally at home is in a high school. The place where, as we talked about last week, where identity is fleeting, where you're never really sure who you are. I mean, let alone anyone can be sure who you are from the outside. And then on top of that, you have people with all of these very complicated motives and ideas on how they're going to achieve those things. It's like, yeah, that sounds like high school to me. And these very naked, overt, complex plans that wouldn't make sense in any other environment make sense here. It's kind of like the brilliance of Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing, in which, you know, how do you adapt Much Ado About Nothing into modern times? Well, how he goes and does it is he sets it at a wedding where everybody's staying, but everybody's drunk the whole time so since they're drunk all of these big grand schemes of let's hook up this person with this person and this person will sound like really good ideas they sound like really good ideas when you're drunk and these the all of these crazy plans sound like really good ideas when you're in high school that's why this podcast exists because we got drunk i was like wouldn't it be cool if we did a show version of that 
blog. Ah, let's do it. That then, is exactly how this happened. Yeah, and then we, we sobered up and went, on my couch one night. Well, and- I guess we're going to have to do it now. We've already committed to it. So you're welcome, world. Another thing that sounded like a great idea when people had been drinking. So let's talk about Heath Ledger uh, for a moment in this movie because... This was this was at a very interesting point in Heath Ledger's career. This is the introduction to U.S. audiences. Yeah, he had done this movie Two Hands uh, in Australia, which had kind of made its way over here uh, in the indie scene. Uh, you know, this was this was the late eight, the late nineties were the height of of the indie scene, where you know indie uh, where film fans were seeking out anything and everything we could find that nobody had heard of to find, you know, this amazing talent. Hollywood was doing the same. And there was this really cool heist film called Two Hands uh, that had this young actor, Heath Ledger. And all of a sudden, Heath Ledger was on everyone's map. And he was about to be forced down our throat. And it was very much like, for those of you that recall... Um, uh, uh, several episodes back when we were talking about 12 Monkeys, this was just a few years after Brad Pitt had had the same thing where he was very much forced down our throat for several movies. He was the hot new young guy who was supposedly really talented, but hadn't really gotten the chance to prove it yet. And this was one of those movies where people are like, oh, this is the hot new thing. Oh, I don't know if he's going to live up. And of course, then turns out to be this epic titan, uh, one of the only two people in history to posthumously win an Academy Award uh, as, as for acting mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and would go on to, you know, but at this era, you know, they're putting him in stuff like this. They're putting him in as the son and the patriot. Mm-hmm. He is just all of a sudden exploding. And we're like, is he really any good? Well, and see, that's the thing is his career was this weird sort of like you would see him see him in something where he was really good and then he would even in like really generic stuff he would still be good but you would get the sense that oh that's he's going to start disappearing and then he would do something about every two to three movies like that he would do something that would completely surprise you yeah like he was you know in 10 things i hate about you then he's in the patriot and then he's in a knight's tale and you're like oh, okay i can kind of see where and then he does mo- he does monsters ball yeah and it's like Okay, shit. And then he does Four Feathers, and you're like, okay, now I'm kind of seeing, like, okay, they're Lords of Dogtown. And then he does Brothers Grimm. And it's like, every time you thought you knew exactly what type of an actor Heath Ledger was, he would do something that completely surprised everybody. Yeah. And I think that was always kind of, uh, you know, it's it's illustrative of how good an actor he was, that even in the stuff where we thought we had I love how you, you skip past Brokeback Mountain. Oh, I hadn't gotten there yet. Okay. I just hadn't gotten there yet. No, I mean, that's the whole thing is... Brothers Grimm and Brokeback Mountain incidentally came out the exact same year, which is, I think, yeah. like pretty fantastic. But no, it's just one of those things like every time we thought we knew exactly what type of actor we were dealing with, he would do something that would completely surprise everybody. And I think in this movie, uh, this could have gone to just a pretty boy actor. This yeah. is a role that could have gone to you know someone who doesn't necessarily have the chops for it, but just looks the part. And yet Heath Ledger has so much charisma and so much charm and yet plays this role. He knows exactly how to walk the line between being, you know, the bad boy that everyone at the school expected him to be and having that kind of that simmering undertone of like something much deeper going on. It's, it's the illusion of being one dimensional, which yeah. is really hard to pull off. Yeah. You're playing a character that has many facets that you have to sell as someone that everyone could believe to be this one thing. And that's a really difficult thing to ask any young actor to do. And I think that's why he has, you know, one of the two best performances in the whole movie. Yeah. And and he's so goddamn charming when, when he actually turns on the charm. And this movie's centerpiece moment is him being magical. You know, and and of course, for those of you that know this film inside and out, you know I'm talking about the musical number. Absolutely. The, the musical number is one of those things that every time it pops up online, you know you click it. You watch him run around singing this song. The, the, the marching band strikes up, and you're just like, holy fuck, I am in love with this moment of you the film. You fall in love with him. Yes. That's, it, like, that's like a say anything moment. Yeah, like yeah. that that is one of those say anything moments when you have to step back and go, wait, am I in love with this movie or did I just fall in love with this character? Yeah. Did did he did his grand gesture work on me the same way it worked on the on the female lead of the movie? Because yeah, it's he's impossibly charming throughout this whole movie. In fact, they make a direct this weird juxtaposition of his bad boy image, but then every fucking time he smiles, 
it's just like twinkle. It's yeah. like it, you you see this this boyish charm that he had, even even as you know the moments where he's being the most hard ass. Every time he smiles, even if he's being snide, even if he's just messing with people, is still impossible. One of my favorite scenes is early in the movie. He gets pulled into the. Uh, the principal's office, played by Allison Janney, who oh, is yes. hilarious in this yes. movie. Allison Janney's whole conceit is she's a teacher who's uh, 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 what's the the phrase for it? Uh, moonlighting. Moonlighting. Yeah, she's moonlighting as a uh, um, as a uh, a writer of erotic fiction. Erotic fiction. I was looking for yeah. the right words for it. <laughs> a writer of erotica. Yes, and uh, and she's churning. She's uh, she's an administrator who writes erotica and is constantly asking for metaphors from the uh, from the students. And she's highly inappropriate at all times. And yeah. Allison Janney is hilarious. Again, the casting in this movie fucking great. Allison Janney had not yet um, when this movie had come out. Uh, nobody had quite realized how brilliant she was. She, you know, had acted in, but the movie had not come out yet. Uh, nobody had seen American Beauty yet. You know, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Aaron Sorkin had not made The West Wing yet. You know, nobody really realized who this woman was and just how profoundly talented she was. And she's just amazing here. But yeah, that scene between them uh, is really fantastic. You know, the thing I... Uh, well, the, the scene works because he comes in and he's in trouble for exposing himself in the cafeteria but he walks in and just says, uh, you know, I'm so thankful for these little moments we have together. Should I cut off the lights? And she's just like, oh, that charm, kangaroo boy. <laughs> like, and it's it's just really fun. And then my, my favorite inappropriate exchange is he says, I didn't expose myself. I was I was joking around with the lunch lady. It was a bratwurst. And she walks right up to him, looks at his crotch and goes, bratwurst, aren't we the optimist? <laughs> yeah. It's so, it's just so good. Just yes. so good. Uh, you know, the interesting thing, one of the things uh, about Heath Ledger is Heath Ledger is now my my prime example in my mind of why uh, internet commentary on casting is so worthless. Um, if you ever want to feel, you know, just understand why groupthink on the internet can can take a fucking hike sometimes go back and Google the responses when Heath Ledger was announced as the Joker. I will admit to being one of those people. I will admit I was not in the industry yet. I wasn't writing for anyone, but I remember thinking that is the worst possible idea. And I was pushing hard. I was like, why didn't they cast Vincent Cassell? Vincent Cassell would have been a great Joker. And then of course, when the dark Knight came out, like you could almost hear this collective Oh yeah, we were wrong. Like this, this well, it was the same thing with Robert Downey Jr. on Iron Man. You know, mm-hmm. they, they were almost identical things. Where people were like, that's not you don't get it. That's not the point. You know, clearly you've gotten the wrong person. You know, when uh, when they were working on Doctor Strange, the early announced person who uh, was, uh, uh, and it was a very similar thing. It was Joaquin Phoenix, and it's one of those things where everyone's like, no, no, he looks like this, and he has a goatee. River Phoenix or Joaquin Phoenix is going to look terrible with a goatee, and it's like. Uh, uh, dude, uh, do you not see? Uh, remember when everybody said that Robert Downey Jr. would make a terrible Iron Man because he was too Weasley? And remember when everybody said that Heath Ledger was too good looking and and too pretty boy to be the Joker? It's like these are the we learn nothing. Of- by the way, we <laughs> yeah. never learn anything. No, no, no. And and I, I think it's a really but he's that prime example because talk about amazing actors totally snuffed out in his prime. I mean, I. I I wonder, I really wonder what he would have gone on to do uh, in subsequent films, uh, what that third Batman film might have been had he still been around. Yeah. And one of the kind of ironic things about that is there's a moment in this movie where Bianca knows that her sister isn't gay because she says, I found a picture of Jared Leto in her room once. And it's like, wait a minute. She has a thing for the Joker. She has a thing for the fucking Joker. Like, because Jared Leto, of course, is now playing the Joker for Suicide Squad, and, you know, Heath Ledger, obviously, in The Dark Knight, so it's just a very weird kind of circumstance, especially... She does ultimately end up playing a character who falls in love with a serial killer in Dexter. Oh, my God, that's true. So, she is... She, we're just talking about a woman who loves serial killers. That that could very she well loves, be it. She loves psychosis. That, and it, it's even doubly weirder when you think about how Jared Leto kind of fell off the face of the earth for a while. Uh, you know, like this period in the late 90s, he was big, and then he disappeared for a while, and then he like only just recently came back with, you know, Dallas Dallas Buyers Club, really, was his big comeback, and now he's getting all this work again. So, it the movie could... 
there's no way it could have known that. And yet they make reference to two once and future Jokers for Warner Brothers. There's, uh, there's Batman crawling all over this. I mean, fucking and then Robin. Just, yeah, just man. This is this is the lost superhero movie. <laughs> uh, he so talented, and here you just see it. And when you go back and watch it, and it's one of those things that at the time people didn't quite catch it. They said, "Yeah, he's cute and he's good, but is is that all he can?" And, do? and it's like, "Oh, dude, he's an A lister." Yeah, he absolutely. Was, in yeah, terms of and talent, right from the beginning, and he's put against. You know who we have not talked about yet? Who's really also amazing here? He's put against. Julia Stiles. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And she is phenomenal in this movie because in her performance, again, it's that it's that very complicated thing of playing a character that is that is layered and convincing the audience of those layers, but at the same time convincing all of the other characters who, for all intents and purposes, I'm going to say on the stage, that that character only has one dimension. So, it, and her as well. So she's putting forth this facade of being a complete closed off hard ass shrew when you know even if you've never read the play she has to sell to the audience that there's more to that character than meets the eye even as she's selling to everyone else oh no there is not and interestingly enough uh unlike most other teen films she actually was in high school while she shot a high school movie this wasn't a 24-year-old playing a 17-year-old. This is a 17-year-old playing a 17-year-old. And it's interesting because she actually told a story after the fact about when she first went to college. And she's walking up the stairs carrying boxes with her dad uh, going up into her dorm room. And some guy passes her. He goes, oh, my God, you're that girl from 10 Things I Hate About You. And she's like, yeah, I am. And he's like, dude. That that the scene of you dancing on top of that uh uh that table on yeah. top of the table is my screensaver. I love that. <laughs> oh, you're so hot. And of course, she's standing there next to her dad, and she's just like, uh, this is really uncomfortable. <laughs> but yeah, so uh yeah, it's uh so she actually was right on the nose in that time. Of course, she has since barely aged because she uh is genetically superior to the rest of us. Uh, but uh, she's genetically superior to the rest of. I like that. That's a good way to put. It. She's just genetically superior to the rest of us. That's just the way it works. It's just the way it is. Yeah. And then it, what? It, I think an even more difficult role in the movie uh, is that of uh, what is her name, uh, Larissa Olenek. Yeah. Because that character is so fucking shallow. Oh, yeah. Just so, like, the the whole conversation she has about, like, the difference between like and love is that I like my Skechers, but I love my Prada backpack. And her friend is like, well, I love my Skechers. And she says, well, that's because you don't have a Prada backpack. Yeah. And you still, throughout the movie, have to buy into Joseph Gordon-Levitt pining for her. Yes. So even though she's playing a very shallow character, she has to do it with enough allure that we root for Joseph Gordon-Levitt to win her. But the beauty of that relationship that comes straight out of Shakespeare... Straight out of Shakespeare! Straight out of Shakespeare! Uh, which is my Crazy favorite. motherfucker from Avon! No, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> from Verona! <laughs> West side of Verona! No, that, what, what's straight out of the Shakespeare is that he's equally as vapid. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the beauty of it, is that he is just as hollow and one-note as she is. He's just hollow and one note in different ways and uh because they do in fact belong together because they both really are uh uh, one-dimensional people uh whereas these two one-dimensional people coming together is what brings together the three-dimensional people that we actually care about that's and the brilliance of this play is that at first we're looking to see these two people get together and eventually we don't give a shit about those people because the people we really give a shit about are the people we at the beginning think we don't give a shit about Mm. which is why uh, the taming of the shrew is one of uh, uh, one of Shakespeare's best plays, and I would argue probably his best comedy. I, I like it better than Much Ado About Nothing and Twelfth Night. Uh, I, I think my favorite is still Much Ado, but I, I think I think it's a good point though. I, I think there is an interesting, you know, he's he's almost there's almost a comedy in and of itself in the way that it's structured, yeah. like almost like a, a satire of the way you should structure something like this, which actually to me lends credence to the theory that Cymbeline, it was a play written it completely as a joke to make fun of himself because he makes fun of, you know, he plays with the expectations of 
the structure of his own plays, even as far back as Taming of the Shrew. So when they found Cymbeline and the, the whole prevailing theory that Cymbeline is just, he took elements of his own plays and threw them together in a way that makes no sense just to make fun of himself. And I think, you know, moments like that where you realize, like, Taming of the Shrew, part of the joke is that the people you think you're supposed to be interested in their story are be- become completely secondary by the end of it. So, you know what, since we're, since we're on this topic, let's yeah. just have a small little segue what are your favorite Shakespeare's? My favorite Shakespeare's, uh, well, Much Ado About Nothing, absolutely. Um, I still have uh, a real Jones from Macbeth. I love, I love the whole like you know, the power struggle and the idea that somebody can be completely corrupted from the outside like that. And um, damn, Othello. God, Othello. Yeah. Like Iago is one of his greatest characters. Yes, Iago is one of the greatest characters that Shakespeare ever wrote. Um, so I think probably those three would be like my top three, I guess. Oddly enough, I have very different ones. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think the guy, the guy's so prolific yeah. that I feel like it's like when you say, what's your favorite Hitchcock film? Nobody's going to have the same three yeah. favorite Hitchcock films. Well, mine, mine are, you know, Hamlet's my absolute favorite. I mean, I, I love Hamlet and all the various iterations. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of Titus Andronicus. Really? I love Titus Andronicus. I know it's, it's a very unpopular choice. I know a lot of people hate Titus Andronicus. I love it. Uh, I just love how crazy and sadistic and absurd it is. Um, and then, of course, Taming of the Shrew. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I, I think they're, they're not all great plays. Don't get me wrong. Like no. Shakespeare is one of the great writers of all time. But, you know, he, he was writing. He was writing popular fiction at the time. Yeah. So like all popular fiction, some of it is a little pandering and some of it uh, is a little obtuse. And mm-hmm. but he hits more than he misses. Yeah. And he hits a lot more than he misses. So we talked about um, soundtrack last week when we talked about Can't Hardly Wait, and I feel like we should probably talk about uh, soundtrack again with oh, 10 yeah. Things I Hate About You, because what I will say this, the soundtrack for Can't Hardly Wait consistently works better for me than this one does. I feel like... Well, because it's all great party music. Well, but the, the moments the moments that really d- work well for me in Can't Hardly Wait as far as the soundtrack goes are actually in the more tender moments. And in this movie, those are the points where I feel that the soundtrack fails us a little bit or goes for the most maudlin, the most kind of generic sounding song uh, that it can for the more emotional beats. When And the tragedy of that for me is that the performances are so good that we don't need we don't need to be cued by a soundtrack to know what people are feeling because these are like it's not an episode of Dawson's Creek, right? Like the we we can tell what's going on with these with Except these characters. At this time, Dawson's Creek was such a big thing. Yeah, there's even a reference a, to it in the movie. Yeah, yeah, that there's there's imitation because this was this was uh, the late '90s were a bad period for entertainment. I mean, it was it was kind of rough. You know, the the indie scene was spinning out. Um, uh, genre kept trying to take off and just couldn't. Um, and, uh, and, it, and, and mainstream culture was just kind of lost and trying to find itself and had no idea where it was going. And, and so, yeah, so you had, uh, you had a lot of TV stuff being the influential stuff. Dawson's mm-hmm. Creek was a huge hit. Um, uh, and uh, and so you've got things like this trying to get off the ground. And yeah, no, I agree with you. I think that the the music, the soundtrack, where it was so perfect and still holds up today and can't hardly wait. Here, there's a lot of it that I love because, you know, having grown up in that era and listened to those bands and seen some of these bands live, uh, I absolutely love a lot of these songs. But yeah, some of it feels very of its time in a way that doesn't transcend and then others of it just don't work entirely. Yeah. And speaking of not working entirely, did you know that Heath Ledger was not uh, apparently the only choice that the filmmakers had for the role of Patrick? I did not. And you know how we talked about how the role could have gone to somebody who's not very talented is just a pretty boy. Ashton Kutcher apparently was one of the two people that Heath Ledger beat out for the role of Patrick, the other being Josh Hartnett, who I actually think is very talented. Uh, but we almost got a movie where Ashton Kutcher played the role of Patrick. And yeah, yeah, again, I think it just illustrates the importance of getting, like, when you have an actor with range and with talent to play a role that, you know, could, in especially in this point in the 90s, have gone to somebody who's pretty, like, dodged a bullet there. Dodged a bullet. I also think it's interesting that one of the big complaints I always hear about this movie is that it's unrealistic 
where they're going to high school. Nobody goes to high school in that castle. That's clearly just because it's Shakespeare and nobody actually goes to school in a school that looks like that. Funny thing is, that's a real high school. Yeah. <laughs> that high school that's not another building that they're doubling as a high school. That is an actual high school in uh Washington. In Washington State. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just think it's funny that that was one of the big complaints I heard about this. I think it's also a complaint I heard about She's All That. Did they use the same building, or am I completely... I, I may be completely wrong. I don't wrong. remember. Uh, She's All That is one I remember moments of, and uh, uh, it's one I kind of wanted to talk about because uh, of, uh, of of what a failure She's All That is compared to uh, several of the other teen films of the era. Like, that's... If you want to if you wanna see the difference between, you know, uh, how the teen films got done right and how it isn't, aside from Bratz... Uh, you can watch She's All That compared with this. And yeah. uh, uh, and not to be confused with She's the Man, which is one we we, we briefly mentioned before, uh, which is by the same writers of this, uh, where they're doing Twelfth Night. And it's also it also works in the same way this does, in that, you know, there's elements of it that are, you know, kind of cheesy and fun and, and very teen-oriented, but that the overall uh, Shakespeare-ness of it shows through and and carries the movie through with great performances because uh, She's the Man is actually one of the uh, better performances that I've ever seen out of Amanda Bynes. Um, she's genuinely funny in this and and charming and uh, this was the high point before, you know, uh, before sadly, tragically, her, her mental illness kicked in and uh, she became a tabloid whipping girl. Um, but yeah, this was, this was just at the height of her powers when she was still really, really fantastic and doing really well. Uh, but yeah, that's another one. If you, if you want to watch this, watch this back to back with She's the Man as a, a Shakespearean twofer, uh, both written by the same people and, and both starring a really talented cast. Although the She's the Man does not have quite the epic talented cast that, you know, tell oh, me about you. This, this is an all-star team. Yeah. This is really one of those rare, how the hell did they? How the hell did they do that? It's it's kind of like uh, the one one movie that I'm surprised we haven't talked about yet that that is like that uh, uh, the good the bad not uh, I'm sorry no 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 quick and the dead uh, where you look at the quick and the dead and it's like how the fuck did you oh it's get ridiculous that cast in that movie you could never remake that movie today with that cast same here I mean and you know uh, raising the dead aside. Uh, you could never, you know, you, you couldn't get that cast together without, you know, a huge check to do this kind of movie. Yeah. It's just not going to happen because uh, these people are just too huge now. Um, yeah. By the way, it's Stadium High School in Tacoma, Washington, which was built as a railroad station hotel, but it suffered fire damage. So they renovated it into a high school long before this movie was made. So it's a real high school. Like people actually graduated from that castle. Like that's, that's a real thing. Cool. It is kind of fucking cool. I really wish I had been, you know, one of the students to go to that particular school, but there you have it. So, you know, we started talking about soundtrack and then as we tend to do sometimes got a little bit uh, sidetrack. Little sidetrack. One of the things I think is interesting though when we're talking about this movie and then last week's film Can't Hardly Wait is that Can't Hardly Wait the big kind of like hit that came from that soundtrack was the uh, can't get enough of you, yeah. baby. Cover get enough of by you, Smash baby. Mouth. The original version of that song is in this film. Oh yeah, and it's it's weird. It's like this this odd crossover that's going on between the two movies. But again, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of great in this soundtrack, and then there's a lot of just like watered down. You know, as I think Cher from uh, from Clueless would have said, like wah wah college radio sadness. Like there's there's a lot of that in this as as well, and unfortunately those moments are like really pivotal moments for the characters that are being completely supported by their performances and don't need you know the cue for the audience as to what to feel. By the way, the scene in the movie where they're playing paint balloons, <laughs> like I think it says paintball, but it's not it's not paintball as I've ever seen it before. It is like water balloons full of paint that you just smash. Is that a real thing? Because I may not have paint, well, those are paint grenades. They're paint playing grenades. paintball, and they're they're using. But they don't they don't have they don't have like no no one appears to have any guns. It's just balloons full of paint. Is that a thing? Like because I've only ever played paintball where you have a gun full of paintballs. Well, so keep in mind this was the nineties, right? I mean, that's why I'm asking you. Shit in the nineties. You're old. You're older than me, so I thought maybe this was yes. like, oh yeah, in high school we did that all the time. It wasn't a big thing, but it was something that you know when we watched the movie when it first came out, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. That's cool and different. But again, I think this is a movie 
that has incredibly strong performances, not just from the principals, but as we mentioned, uh, Larry Miller, Allison Janney, a Gabrielle lot of, Union, Gabrielle who we haven't Union. actually mentioned yet. Yeah, yeah. there's like, another another superstar yeah. who, who uh, uh, shows up here as a best friend character. Yeah. And there's there's a lot about it. Like, what's what's the most dated thing though to you about this movie? Like, I know we we've mentioned that this film is has moments that are a little bit more dated um, than some of the other movies we're going to talk about. So, like, what what for you is like the most like to me? It's Bogie Lowenstein. Like that character. Like the the the, the Uber yuppie. Oh no no! For me, I'll tell you exactly the most dated part of this movie is the fucking hip hop English teacher. <laughs> the hip hop that is such that is such a product of the 90s of a you know and, and here's an interesting thing of, of, of history in fact you know uh, you know you all basically know the basic story of civil rights and where in the 60s you know we finally started giving you know uh, uh, people finally got their shit together and started giving civil rights to the various races and um, in the seven in the late 60s and early 70s there was a big push especially in public television, to kind of merge, um, uh, 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 make sure that there was racial diversity and everything. So, of course, you know, Sesame Street became, you know, this perfect melting pot of various races. And you started seeing that across the board. And there's this magical period of time in the 70s where um, uh, all these television shows and cinema started featuring African-Americans and that my generation grew up with this. So, you know, I grew up as a kid, I you know, at four o'clock on WGN, I would watch, um, uh, I would watch Good Times followed by Scooby-Doo, like, you know, and then later in the evening, I'd watch Sanford and Son, and there was a period of time where you could see Chico and the Man, and, and there was all this stuff, and then, you you know, went into, um, uh, you know, the Cosby show, and we had that, but then it kind of petered out in the 80s, and everyone recognized that it petered out, so then it kind of exploded again in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, where you had a lot of, uh, you, you know, you had a, a lot of hip-hop culture uh, influencing my generation. So, of course, in order to talk to Gen Xers, everybody felt, well, if we want to talk to Gen Xers, we have to talk to them urban because they are they are a, uh, the first generation to, you know, be really open and embrace, uh, uh, you know, racial mixing and racial unity. And this character is so indicative of that time of we're going to talk to all these Gen Xers and we know how to be down and talk to them and we're except rather than have Having the white English teacher doing it. We have the black teacher doing it and making fun of the white kids who are, you know, the, the Rastafarian characters. That's right, man. No, don't even get me started. Don't just stop it right there. Yeah. yeah. And so that character, that is the single most dated thing. That's the thing that takes me back. And, it, and, and sh- you know, the, the, you know, uh, I went to high school with people who wore their pants and shirts backwards because Chris Cross did it. And, and it's like, <laughs> Oh God, this is, this is that period of time where I'm not, I'm, I'm so mortified, even though I didn't do it. I'm mortified that I had friends that did it, yeah. you know, that I was sat in a room with people that fucking did that shit. So this, that's the moment to take, like, you know, anytime I see the big cell phone, yeah, that takes me back a little bit, except that you didn't really see kids have that shit. Um, in the, by the, and by the time that happened, it wasn't the big bulky phones, you know, kids did have cell phones in the late nineties and, um, and uh, they weren't that big, so it was kind of a goofy, fun, uh, fun take on on a throwback. But uh, but that's the thing that keys me into the '90s the most is hip hop English teacher. And faith, I do not love thee with mine eyes, for then thee a thousand errors note. But tis my heart that loves what they despise. Who in despite of you is pleased to dope. Hip hop English teacher, look for it in Ten Things I Hate About You, along with uh, people who are way too into coffee shops mm-hmm. and uh, you know, future yuppies of America. Yeah. Now, of course, it's not quite you know, it, it's not quite uh, uh, so I married an axe murderer. Which uh, it's a fun aside. How if, if you ever want to see something truly surreal, go back and watch. So I married an axe murderer, but imagine that it is a parody made today of what it was like to be in the nineties. Because that's exactly what it fucking feels like. Yeah, like it's literally, it's literally him riffing on things that are popular at the time that really didn't last so it really is 
it really is Mike Myers making fun of the 90s in a way that you're just like, holy shit, we really did drink from these giant fucking coffee cups and we thought it was fucking cool. (laughs) There's there's actually a line that uh, Larry Miller's character has that even though he's supposed to be just being a dad, like trying to be cool, the lingo that he uses is just time appropriate enough. Yes. Like it's, it's that the joke doesn't quite work because he's not using outdated enough lingo. So now when you watch that scene, it just sounds like someone who's trying to remind us of what the lingo actually was at the time the movie was made. Yes. It's when he says, I'm down. I've got the 411 and you are not going to go out and get jiggy with some boy. I don't care how dope his ride is. My mama didn't raise no foo. And I'm just like, that may be the most dated piece of dialogue in the entire movie, even though it was supposed to be a joke about how her dad is dated. They didn't push that out far enough. Yeah. So it just sounds like, hey, remember hey, remember your favorite lingo of the late 90s? Except the thing is, is that Gen Xers still use most of that lingo. <laughs> so I've, I I know people who, who will give me the 411 on something and uh, that something is pretty dope. That movie is very dope. Uh, although Jiggy... Jiggy's the one that that really is is the the most dated piece of that sentence. <laughs> no one says Jiggy anymore. No one gets Jiggy. With no one it said anymore. Jiggy then either. <laughs> um, but again, a great movie that really does take the things that work about or that are that are familiar about Shakespeare's plays and the things that we love about teen movies in the eighties and finds this happy middle ground between those two spheres in the, in the Venn diagram, you've got the, the Shakespeare plays and the eighties teen movies and that centerpiece so beautifully. That's, that's 10 things I hate about you. And I, and I, I really like this movie. I, I, I love this movie. I go back and watch this movie quite a fair bit. Yeah, it's it's something that's annoyed me because I cannot find it uh, for purchase on VOD. Uh, I can only find it for to rent. rent. Yeah, and I really, it's one of my movies that I would love to have as a travel movie because I adore it so much. And it's one of those movies I can, if it's 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 like Shawshank Redemption. If it's on, I'm not changing the channel. I don't care if the the Super Bowl's on. I'm I'm fucking watching Ten Things I Hate About You. It's like oh, I love this scene, and then I'm in it. Uh, it's it's just one of those great. Uh, comfort films for me that uh, that always works. Well, and and I watched it on my terrible DVD. I don't know if you guys ever bought the DVD. For this I movie. have the DVD. Oh my god, it's hor- it's like double letterboxed. First of all, yeah. So you're watching like a postage stamp version of the movie, uh, and then but if you if you deign to change the aspect ratio on your TV and zoom in, that is one of the worst transfers. Like there's so much noise on the actual picture, and I'm like, this is a DVD. Why does it look like I'm watching a VHS? Um, so it's unfortunate, but you know, hopefully, uh, maybe if there is a Blu-ray out there, I'm going to feel kind of foolish, but the DVD is all I had on hand. Um, uh, but it's really, it's a really bad DVD, but it is a really great movie. So you should definitely seek that out and great dialogue too. the dialogue in this movie, the jokes that are made. It's really sharp. I mean, really that's, a, that's something we should have said. I mean, that's the thing is this writing team. That's what I love about both of these movies. They worked on, uh, that were Shakespearean adaptations. Really, really great. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things too, that they don't rely too heavily on using, uh, lines from the actual play. There's a couple of moments where they drop them in, but they don't, they don't go, it's not oppressive. Like, they don't borrow so much from the dialogue of the play that you feel like it was an easy kind of just ported it over. But, like, the, the cleverness of the dialogue is it's all contemporary dialogue. It's all, you know, new dialogue for the adaptation. It's not just them porting over lines from the play. And I, I think it, it works really well. Yeah, yeah. No, even even the goofy stuff, like the the really, really super goofy stuff. Like, like there's the, a, I have a dick on my face, don't God, I? Exactly. <laughs> there's a dick on my face, don't I? Yeah, uh, you know, really, really works. So, of course, we should probably, I've, I've mentioned the writers a couple times, we should probably actually talk about them. Karen McCullough and, and, and Kirsten Smith, who are, who are our writing team, I believe, still, uh, uh, but worked on a number of films together. And the thing is, is they've worked on a number of films that, transcend the genre they 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 typically write what would be called chick flicks but most of the time really great chick flicks so of course we talked about 10 things i hate about you and she's the man but they also did legally blonde uh and the house bunny both are both of which are really good for the type of things they are and both are very similar uh they also did ella enchanted i love ella enchanted in fact i love okay. i love ella enchanted so much that it made me angry to watch the disney live action cinderella where they turned her back into this completely helpless waif where it's like an ella enchanted you know that she was just so much more interesting a character and they made her more independent and they made her 
less a victim, you know, like she kind of was in the storybook. So it kind of felt like a huge step backwards after having that version of Cinderella to then see like the I'm crying over here, but I'm going to stand up and stop crying just so I can go cry over there now. And it's just yeah. like, damn it, you're so you're so you're such a wet blanket. I don't like this version of Cinderella anymore. See, and I I, I didn't connect with Ella Enchanted. I there's elements that I love of it, and of course I'm a huge Anne Hathaway fan. I don't understand the Hathaway haters. If there's anything in cinema right now I don't get, it's the Hathaway haters. Um, but uh, I, I really felt like this movie was kind of slumming it for her, and it hmm. gets so silly and goofy in the third act that it just really took me out of it. Uh, but it, uh, I get why some people dig it. Uh, and of course, then of course, they, they, this this pair has one real misfire. Like they've done all these big g- great movies, even movies that didn't hit, like She's the Man, which is still really good. And their only real misfire is the ugly truth. The ugly truth of the situation is the ugly truth is their oh, one big misfire. Oh, oh, but of course, at any you know, it's a Catherine Heigl movie, so it's the ugly truth about Catherine Heigl is that she's the worst. Uh, and and that she's paired up with Gerard Butler, oh. who uh, also just uh, has the one of the worst noses for noses for scripts in Hollywood. Well, no, that's true. It's like it's like he's a joke. It's like anytime somebody throws a script at the wastebasket, he thinks it's a grenade and he jumps to block and save the wastebasket. <laughs> he, he stands like, there like no. Dikembe Mutombo, yeah. knocks it away from the garbage and goes, yes, 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 and then takes the roll. Yeah, so, but this this pair, they're really great and they've done a, a, I mean, if you've not seen Legally Blonde, She's the Man or The House Bunny, those are three great chick flicks that, that guys can easily watch and go, oh shit, that's a really good movie. Like they're they're chick flicks that transcend. They 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 don't pander, uh, and that's what's so great about Ten Things I Hate About You is it's one of those movies that it doesn't matter your gender. It's a romantic comedy that you're gonna dig because it's just so well done. And and they're just a really talented duo. And and this is probably while it is not their biggest hit, I think it is probably their best. Uh, and going to be their most time-honored work. Agreed. So we have said more than 10 things we love about this movie. If it's been a while since you've seen it, definitely go back and revisit 10 Things I Hate About You, a fantastic, fantastic teen movie uh, and a great Shakespeare adaptation. I have a dick on my face, don't I? Which brings us, of course, to the junk food pairing. And I wasn't, you know, it wasn't until our conversation about this movie that I really settled on it. But the junk food pairing is definitely going to be a bratwurst for two reasons. <laughs> two reasons. You spent all this time talking about coffee and then you go for the broth. I, I know, but the reason I'm going to go with that because Shakespeare, one of the things that they won't tell you about uh, in high school is that one of Shakespeare's greatest strengths was innuendo. Oh, that yeah. guy could write a dirty joke like no one else. Like even Red Fox would be like, wow, that's really dirty. Uh, <laughs> since we already mentioned Sanford and Son, I thought since I was, we, yeah, yeah. we could. Oh, I'm always fine going back to Red Fox, baby. Yeah. I, I mean, that's and that's the thing is like he would write really spectacular, filthy jokes and he would write it with such eloquence that even as you're reading, like in high school, when you're reading his plays, you don't even know that they're dirty jokes. And there's actually one from uh, Taming of the Shrew where uh, Petruchio says, uh, who knows not where a wasp does wear his sting in his tail. And Katarina uh, says in his tongue, Petruchio, whose tongue? Yours, if you talk of tales and so farewell. And so farewell. What? With my tongue in your tail? Yeah, so it's like, he's not even like real subtle about it sometimes. Yeah. But that, I think, it, it, I just realized as we were talking explains Alice and Janney's character. Yes. Is she sitting there writing all the dirty jokes for for Shakespeare? Yes. Taking, like, completely lewd imagery and trying to make it sound, uh, you know, uh, very poetic. I mean, that's that's the whole... Her character represents that facet of Shakespeare, and I think that's why her character works, that's why that scene is so funny, and that is why I'm making Bratwurst the junk food pairing of this movie. Uh, and Because and, I'm also an eternal optimist. And don't forget to throw some kraut in with it. Yeah, because because a broughten kraut that is and a beer broughten kraut. Yeah. Oh my God! You know what? You've never had. You've never had my beer brats. Again, recording these episodes on an empty stomach is a very very bad idea. I'll make some beer brats. Beer brats. 
Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of Junk Food Cinema. If you want to hear more, you can always find us on iTunes as well as on Stitcher. While you're on iTunes, if you want to give us a five-star rating, leave a review, that would be really great. We'd like to kind of move up in the ranks of iTunes, get more people to listen to the show. That would be awesome. Uh, I'm going to remind you that we're going to be at Convergence in Minneapolis on July 3rd doing a live version of Junk Food Cinema. Just so, a few weeks from now. Just a few weeks from now. Wow, that is coming up. Um, so if, if, you're, if you're in that area, if you're going to be at Convergence, Come by and say hi to us. If you're not, we're going to be broadcasting live, I'm sure. Uh, so keep your ears open for that. Uh, but Cargo, where can people find you online? You can find me at twitter.com slash Massaworm or at Massaworm, really. M-A-S-S-A-W-Y-R-M or at facebook.com slash Massaworm. You can find me on Twitter at Salisbury. Or my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brian Salisbury Critic. You can also find me at oneofus.net, my home away from home. A lot of great geek podcasts and blogs over there for every taste. So definitely check that out. Uh, but for now, I'm going to bow out and remind you guys to remember the rules of junk food cinema. No snark, no irony, no ritualistic animal sacrifices of any kind. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.